Episode 250 of the PJ Archive comprises two interviews I was fortunate to do with the multi-talented British actor-comedian and impressionist John Sessions. John was best known from TV shows such as Whose Line Is It Anyway, Porterhouse Blue, QI, Gormenghast, Judge John Deed and Stella Street and from films including The Bounty, Gangs of New York, Made in Dagenham, The Iron Lady, and Florence Foster Jenkins. Very sadly, John died in 2020, at the age of 67. My first interview with him took place at his home in south-west London in 1990. You're from Scotland, obviously. Yeah. Tell me whereabouts you were born and your upbringing, that sort of thing, and what your parents do. Uh, a little town in Ayrshire called Largs. A little attractive town with two red steeples in it. Uh, my father's a gas engineer. Uh, my mother, housewife, really. She worked in a bookshop sometimes. And not uh, into acting, though? Is that in the no, the family's all engineers and, and Royal Navy. Yeah. You've got brothers and sisters, haven't you? You mentioned earlier. Oh, the brother, he was merchant Navy, but they're all uncles and stuff. They were... What's your brother's name? Bill. He's a he's a ship broker. He's a shipping broker in the city. Yeah. And my my twin sister Maggie, right. who lives in Toronto, has a little girl. She's um, a sort of a lawyer. Are you, are you very close as twins? Hmm. Maybe help more if she wasn't three thousand miles away. <laughs> that may change, but who knows? I don't think we're any different from a lot of other brothers and sisters. You, mm. you've certain common factors in your upbringing, and you and you understand things intuitively because of a common experience. But beyond that, I mean, there's no sort of telepathic business. Although I don't disbelieve that there is. Right, and you say nobody's particularly into performing. So where did that all come from? I don't know. Probably a genetic mishap of some description. <laughs> no, we've got no performers in the family really. But my sense of humour is more my mother's than my father's. Although my father's a sort of Golf club wisecracker. He tells jokes and stuff at the golf club. I don't mean he doesn't stand with the microphone like Ben or something, but I mean he. Though he's just a sort of fun guy, you know. Mm. But my mom, my mother's sense of humour is my sense of humour, or my sense of humour is my mother's, which is, I guess, hard to describe it, but it's absolutely hers. We both see certain things that just make us laugh, or that's a very boring thing to say. Like certain names make me laugh and always mm. have done. Obvious ones like Conway Twitty, but I remember it's about the age of four, both. I find the name Nancy Spain. God love a poor woman who died in a plane crash, but I found that a very funny name for reasons I can't quite understand. But all the things that really made me laugh, I can't understand why they made me laugh, which is why people eventually go insane when they try and analyse comedy. Right. Because the best stuff is unanalyzable. Have you always been a bit of a performer, a bit of a show-off, as it were, as when you were a kid, I mean? No, I was very, um, very anti-social and a bit of a loner as a child didn't start making pals. When I did start making pals, when I was about 10 or 11, I still am very grateful for and proud of the fact that I've got a lot of friends. But when did the... Oh, sorry, I'm not answering your question. Yeah. You know. No, I started fucking around when I was about 10 in classes and stuff. And with this religious knowledge teacher at, uh, at Bedford Modern School, mm -hmm. oddly enough in Bedford, a man with the most wonderful name, Dan Dickey. And Dan, he was ex-Navy as well. In fact, he taught my brother a lot of the Marine Corps and stuff. Well, not the Marine Corps, the, the Royal Navy Corps at yeah. public school stuff. And then he went into the Navy and stuff. 
So what were you doing, mimicking the teachers, that sort of thing? Or? Yeah, using that and then sticking them in silly situations. And then I went to secondary school and I'd, I'd rewrite pop songs for teachers and do t teachers singing pop songs. It was all mm. pretty silly stuff. Uh -huh. I'd be deeply embarrassed to hear any of it now. But what do you think inspired it? Was it attention-seeking, as some people are often accused of? Less attention-seeking than establishing one's currency at school. Mm -hmm. You're either good at games, or you're good with girls, or you were good at making people laugh. Some people managed a combination of all three, which was, of course, the supreme triumph. <laughs> but um, that was the only one I could manage. Did you feel that that was your gift from a very early age, that you could make people laugh? And it was what I was told was my gift, mm. and what it was, well, my ability, whatever, as opposed to being able to be a good ladies' man or a good prop forward or whatever. Mm -hmm. What about actually officially performing, like in school plays or whatever? Did mm. you do those? Mm. When, was your, when was your debut? My debut was in a play by John Drinkwater called X Equals Naught. I performed it with... There's a guy who's now front flies Harriers in the RAF, a guy called Chris Rayner, and uh, David Altz, who's now a uh, big theatre designer. He's, he was then known as David Fisher, he's now called Altz. And we're still very good friends, you know. Was this uh, a school? Yeah, I was 14. It was one of those dreadful sort of... I don't know when John Ring, Drink Water was writing, it's kind of sort of Goldsworthy period, sort of Edwardian Georgian. And it's all about the Trojan Wars, and there's like two Trojans and two Greeks, and we sort of can cancel each, like one of a, a Greek guy, a Trojan, no, what was I? I was a Trojan, that was it. <laughs> I was a Trojan. It was very it was poetic drama, it was also, one of my lines was, it's quiet on the plains tonight, and we did it outside, and the plane's going over, woof, ha, ha, ha. It was typical, sort of, very classic 19th century drama. Or was there no looking back century. from then on, though? You decided that was... No, I was just another kid who did drama at school. I mean, I'd right. know, I mean, I was... I was very traditional in my aspirations that were to go to university and mm -hmm. do English. It was the only thing I knew anything about English and history and art. I was hopeless at all about the subjects. You went to Cambridge, didn't you? Uh, no, didn't. No, I went to Bangor. Oh, right. Uh, I'd love oh, to have gone to Cambridge. That's right, in Canada. Then Canada, yeah. did the doctorate. Yes. Fact, believe it or not, Linda, who was just here, we were at university together. Our lives were sort of come into contact again. After, yeah. Rather like a Dickens novel, you know. <laughs> I didn't go to Rada till much later after I'd finished in Canada. When I was obviously, I was, uh, it was obvious I wasn't going to be a great academic. I was sort of okay. I was very good at being a drudge. But my academic and, and, and scholarly observations and analyses weren't particularly original. Mm. In fact, they were, quite, they were slavishly sort of received. But do you think in retrospect that it was always on the cards that you should do drama? I guess so. The only thing I, I felt I was any, really any good at, which always makes when you get turned over in reviews, you think, well, this is what I'm good at. Mm. What the hell would they say what I'm bad at? Mm. What know? about the ability, the extraordinary ability you have to mimic people? I mean, where did that come from? Do you know? Oh, just wanting to be other people as well. I mean, just, I mean, like, you do, I do Laurence Olivier and people like that because I want to be Laurence Olivier. Mm. Like, I do Keith Richards because I've always wanted to be Keith Richards. I've been a Keith Richards fan for, not just, I love the Stones mm. beyond all rational reason, which is what being a fan's about, of course. And Keith is just, Keith is rock and roll, as well, I'm concerned. Who were the earliest voices you did? Earliest voices I did, I, I used to, I, I say, embarrassed beyond belief, that at the age of seven, I can remember I got a plastic ukulele for Christmas, <laughs> and I recorded Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley by Lonnie Donegan into my brother's tape recorder. Fortunately, no recording still exists, thank Christ. You don't want to give us I also sang, no, absolutely not. <laughs> 
I was also saying my old man's a dustman at the, at, the, at the Gasworks Christmas party when I was eight or something. I wasn't quite Andy Hardy, you know. I wasn't quite li the male version of Lino Zavaroni. You've done things like the Spitting Image uh, yeah. recently, though, haven't mm. you? What voices have you... I tended to do the... Un the, the I mean, I, I never really did any... The only cl nearest one to a classic voice in it, I suppose, it was Olivia. I just... I sort of did all the actors and some of the pop singers and... Um, no, none of the real notable pol politicians. I, Harry Enfield and I sort of alternated on, uh, mm. on Tebbit. But uh, who else did I do? I did Mick and Keith. No, I did Keith. Harry did Mick. Um, did you ever get any feedback from these people? No, well, there was that program the other week. Did you see it? When yes, of course. Robin yeah. Day was yeah. being very whatever about it. Oh, uh, Lawrence Olivier, apparently, God rest his brilliant soul, used to think that I was doing John Mills. Well, that's what he let on. He wouldn't believe it was him. I think Phil Collins got very upset. Uh, there wasn't a sketch that I did. It was one of those... Phil Pope who did the music on I think some of Phil's stuff was some of the best stuff ever on the show. When he did Phil Collins, and Phil Collins got upset. Because Phil Collins hadn't seen it. Eric Clapton had seen it and told yeah. Phil Collins about it. That was it. Are you a great TV watcher? Uh, can do. I, I can very easily, if I don't resolve to do some work in the evening, sit down and uh, watch hours of shit. Usually my own. Oh, <laughs> you're always working and always on the phone and things, but... Oh, no, that, that's, that, that's sort of... There's only bananas at the moment. Things have sort of got very busy in the last month or so. This has actually been a very odd year. It's been a very quiet year, really. I mean, I was... Do you do any spare time? Well, I do my spare time. I socialise, really. I mean, yeah. I, I should be like... If I belong to a golf club or a squash club, I'd like to do something like that. Or I was going to join the rowing club down at the river, but I got scared. I've never been good at uh, sort of sport group activities. It always brings back terrible memories of being dreadful at it at school. I remember trying to join a squash club, and the first time I hit a squash ball, all these brilliant sort of sweaty people who played it all the time in between running the country, mm -hmm. I sort of looked off a balcony and laughed their heads off at me. So I thought, this is, you know, it take me too long to get even remotely decent. I obviously have a weakness at not persevering at what I'm not good at. I think that is very true. It's funny, isn't it? Because one imagines you've got tremendous courage to go on stage and do what you do. More stupidity than courage, I think. No, I don't know. I don't know what it's about. I mean, standing in the wings the other night, I was almost dying with terror. I thought, why why do you do this? I mean, why don't you run a sweet shop? But if I ran a sweet shop for more than three weeks, I'd go mad. Do you think you're quite a shy person? Reserved in some ways? There's a lot of actors as well. No, I'm not, I'm not as socially adept. I mean, I'm not good at media gatherings particularly. Uh, there's a certain savoir-faire at these things which I don't really possess. Um, but I'm sociable. I'm a very gregarious animal. I do like a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I do like a lot of people. Are you still close with your parents and your brother and sister? Yeah. Yeah, yeah pretty well. Do you see uh, them at Christmas time? Yeah, something? I'll be seeing them at Christmas, yeah. Mm -hmm. What about a uh, family of your own? Have you ever been married or anything? I haven't been married. No, there's somebody I see, but... Uh, you know, you can understand, I don't want her sort of... That's all right. But are you hoping one day you might be married? Um, it might be interesting for a short time. <laughs> for a short time? I don't know. No, I don't know. I don't know. I see friends who are, and it's wonderful, actually, most of my friends. Some people, of course, got into deep water, as all our friends have, and that ain't good, but... Um, How do you mean? What do you mean by Well, that? when they divorce and stuff, right. I and mean, that's horrible to watch. Because um, showbiz isn't exactly famous for... It isn't. Healthy no, and, and I've got several pals who are married, and I wish them all the best of luck, you know. Um, but for the time being, you're quite happy. Yeah, I, I, I know. It's, it would be stupid for me to pretend that my work isn't my top priority. 
and it would be unfair to anybody else to pretend that. Although I get very broody for children, I have to say. I kind of like to have kids. Not physically myself, but you know. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to have kids. So, do you envisage yourself, say, in, what, five or ten years' time? having? Well, I'll have to get artificial insemination to I'll be too fucking old. Come on. No, I don't know. No, no, I don't know. Well, I certainly won't be Pablo Picasso getting it up at 85, you know. I don't know, maybe I will. Do you see yourself settling back into Scotland? and? With I do at some stage, yes. I mean, I, as I say, I have friends who've done that. I think I'd have to be more established before I could afford to do that, in the sense of I have to be in London, obviously, for work. Mm. I would like, I'd like to have a place uh, on the Clyde somewhere. Uh, do you well, feel that's to where you... Away from the submarines, of course, <laughs> when they're not murdering fishermen. Yeah. Do you feel that's where you belong, really, up in Scotland? No matter, I mean, even if you were to take the bright lights of Hollywood and everything else, do you think you'd still eventually end oh, up? Oh, I don't know. Yes, I'd like to think that. I think it's terrific, someone like Bill Forsyth, you know, is, he's produced at least three absolutely brilliant films mm. by any standard. And uh, he lives in Scotland, you know, he's centred and rooted. Yes, it's like even you hear the, 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 the famous stars that Meryl Streep lives in Connecticut or something, doesn't she? When you socialise, do you tend to socialise with fellow stars? The showbiz fraternity? Only a bit. See, there's that thing, like, there are... There are people who are f you're friendly with, but you wouldn't socialise with, just because, you know, you and they want to get away from that. There are my oldest and dearest friends who have nothing to do with the business, my two best friends. One is a company director, and the other one is um, a film editor. But there, there are people who are friends, you know, who I would... So I mean, I, I see Stephen Fry quite a lot. I see Ruby Wax quite a lot. I see Robbie Coltrane quite a lot. I see... Kenneth Branagh quite a lot, mm -hmm. although obviously I haven't seen him for a long time because he's in America. Mm -hmm. I mean, Rick and I are friendly, but um, we don't sort of socialise, mm. you know. You, you mentioned earlier about sport and stuff. Do you tend, do you try and keep fit as much as you can? Oh, I'm hopeless. I'm awful. I'm desperately unfit at the are moment. You? I really am going to take myself in hand, yeah. Mm. reach a certain age and you think, oh, yes. gosh, I better do well, something. Well, at my age, I'm 37. I mean, that's got to get real, you know. Well, you think you better do it now before it's too late? Yeah, before I drop dead of a heart attack. You work very hard, don't you? No, well, it's, it's just I smoke too much. Right. <laughs> do you worry about your health? And yes, the it's, it's getting to be a worry, yes. Yeah. Uh, and if I don't do something about it, I'll kill myself. No, oh. I mean, not to say, darling, because I work so hard, you know, another another sacrifice on the altar of entertainment, but I mean, because I'm just a silly bastard and I don't look after myself properly. Thanks. I don't eat properly and I don't, I don't smoke properly, which is not to smoke. Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson, with the second of my interviews with John Sessions. This one was from 1994 and began with John talking about one of his favourite actors. Well, I have a, a sort of an adoration for Edward Fox, like Keith Richards. I, I'm a fan. I'm a huge fan. I watch anything Edward does. I see every time he's on the stage, any time he's in a film, any time he's on the telly. I'm just a huge fan of Edward because um, he's just so interesting as an actor. And as a person, I think, and... Uh, he's a bit hammy, isn't he? No, I don't think so at all. No, no. No, I don't think he's at all hammy. I, I, he did a wonderful play. In fact, his best piece of work. But the last time I saw him, I was talking to him about this. Quaterman's Terms by Simon Gray, in which he played this very sad sort of bloke who um, teaches at this sort of school for foreigners in Cambridge, which Simon did for a while. I think it's also Simon's best play. And uh, he was so brilliant in it. He was just this strange sort of chap who just sort of sat there. 
when everyone else went away with the weekend, Edward was still there, being sort of vague and quite lovely, but quite mad. But he can't be mad to play people mad that well, I don't think. Hello. If you're wearing a Turnbull and Asser shirt, you may leave a message for Peter Robinson. His good friend, Edward Fox, has just taken him out to buy some yellow socks to go with his brogues, which is what a gentleman should wear. If there's a noise in the background, it's his rather working-class valet drawing a bath. Thank you. His brother seems to have taken over from him recently. Well, there's always been this sort of rivalry between them. I mean, James Fox has had a very good last few years. I mean, yeah. with the remains of the day and the question of absolution the other night and, and all of that, you know. So do you have any celebrity fans? I mean, you're saying you're fans of people like Edward Fox. Do you have any people that you are surprised really go for you? Well, people have said they like me. A lot of people have said they like my work. Um, some Michael Gambon or yeah. quite a lot of sort of very yeah. straight actors, you know. Does that give you quite a thrill? When that oh, it's lovely. I mean, these people are my heroes, and, mm. you know, and it's, it's very nice. I mean, I, I remember once I went to Wimbledon with uh, O'Toole, in fact, he and I have a little project on, which is we'll not quite it. official yet, but we'll talk about it in a minute. But it was great because I went with my agent and himself and Peter Ustinov and Dustin Hoffman and his wife. So it was a very exciting day. And on the way back with my agent and his wife and Peter in the car, I did a sort of turn, really. And Peter was just dying with laughter. And it was just great to do a one-man show for a one... Well, Stephen Linda as well, but also... For a tool, you know, I really got off on that. I thought I'd like to do this to go around to people I really admire who like my, my, I make laugh and just mm. sit in the house for an hour and make them laugh. Were you doing impressions or were you just telling I was just, I was doing a sort of improvised thing about it was Brian Johnson, God rest his wonderful soul. Brian Johnson and Dennis Compton, and I can't know what it was. I mean, he was all very mad about how Dennis Compton was really an Indian or something, and uh, I can't remember any of the logic of it, but it sort of, it sort of had made its own sense at the time. And, and the tool was just pissing with laughter, and I was very thrilled by that. Mm. And both he and I had to explain American, uh, Scottish accents to Dustin Hoffman, which was great fun. So, uh, so you're from the west coast of Scotland, John? You know. Yes, and I'm from Ireland, you know. So uh, all this was going on, and we were talking about Highland accents and, and Lowland accents and East Dundee and Wickers and Shetlands. And he was, old Dustin was fascinated. We're talking of wonderful stories, there's likely mm. stories coming up. Yes. Um, is this a sort of follow-on from Tall Tales? It is, I and mean, quite a late follow-on. I mean, it's three years since I did the last series. It took a long time to write. I took a lot of false starts because I tried to do other things first. I tried to write a show about Columbus, and then I discovered that the, the Brent boys, you know, Pat Barlow and uh, I think it was Jim Broadbent involved, but anyway, they did a four-part thing in Columbus that was very funny. Although I actually think the whole Columbus problem is but it's not actually a very interesting story. It isn't. It doesn't really grab the imagination, does it? That's why I think both the Ridley Scott film and the other one really never really took mm. off. That's for the Carry On film. Oh, the Carry On film. Well, yes, I was offered a part in that and I declined. I didn't, Wise decision. I didn't think it was a good idea. Mm. Anyway, so I wrote about 40 pages of this thing and then Jeff and I looked at each other and, and when I heard the Brent guys were doing it. So that was iced and that was like... I was meant to have the series finished by the summer of 92, believe it or not. So Were you I, asked to do another one after the first one? Was it sort of by popular demand? Well, it was, it was more like sort of Jeff and I... Well, the series went out early 91, and I had to go off and I did a telly series in Scotland, and then I did a one-man show around Britain, and then I did Tartuffe, so I really didn't have any time to do any writing that year. But Jeff and I planned to do something else, and we were going to do stuff on VT as well. 
outside broadcast be records and stuff like that. But it's terribly difficult, you know, to be different from, I don't know, say Harry Anfield or Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie. You know, Originality is the name of the game. Isn't it, it is, I think, and you have to, you know, you can't encroach on your colleagues' areas. You know, no one will watch you. you know, and you know, they have uh, Harry's Norbert Smith and his on TV, and Brian Laurie and everything have very distinct areas. And I think if I want to do that, no, I've got to kind of keep it me on a stage with an audience. You know, are these your most satisfying vehicles? These sort of monologues that you do, uh, only insofar as I know that, you know, if people like them, then, you know, I, I, there's nowhere to hide. You know, I've written them, I perform them. Not that Jeff isn't an extraordinary sort of midwife on them, you know, as we're actually going to talk about in an interview next week about how we work together. He's a very good editor and very good at keeping me clear because I always have the tendency to be obscure. But yes, the, I do find them very satisfying. They're very hard work. They're technically very hard work. Um, a lot of the playing four or five characters in a scene, say, keeping them distinct, keeping them clear, and keeping all the lines different, because often one's got, like, in the series, there's a lot of very complicated scenes. There's one with two promenaders, a New Zealand Earth mother and Chris Eubank, uh, who she mistakes for a sort of spiritual leader. She meets them. She meets the Chris on a plane from Bangkok, and, um, and she thinks, because of the way he talks, that he is a spiritual leader. But of course, uh, he is not a spiritual leader. He is a boxer. Anyway, so she ends up at the... He, he thinks he's a spiritual leader. He, he thinks he's a spiritual leader. They end, up, anyway, they end up at the Albert Hall, and he's got the wrong night, and it's the night for the proms, you see. So she then runs into the promenaders, this earth mother, who's one of these sort of crystal, sort of 20-stone cheesecloth types from New Zealand. She goes around the world not listening to anybody, you know, and she meets this wee Buddhist monk, and she's telling him what's wrong with Buddhism and what a little male chauvinist piggy is and everything. And, you know, all of Bangkok is completely missing her. She's too busy coming out with her tenth-rate sort of bad feminism, shall we say. I hope nobody thinks this is a piece on on women in general. It is on a certain type of woman, that dreadful sort of femme-born, you know, who has half-digested sort of Susan Sontag and Camille Pallier and all these people and just comes out with all this really sort of knee-jerk drivel, you know. Are you resurrecting any of the characters from your first series, The Tall Tales? No. Um, uh, let me just think through. The first show is a character very like but not at all based upon Dirk Bogard, who comes back to Britain incognito to do the Sugar Buff Honey Monster advert because uh, he's broke. And he's doing it in the street where, the, where Putnam and Richard Attenborough and all those guys are having a conference in the British film industry. So he's having to tell them that it's actually a Polish art movie. So it's a sort of farce, a one-man farce. So that's cool. it's got a lot of actors in it, that one. you know. And you know, I do tend to do a lot of actors. And there we go. Second show that's all about education. And two of the characters are my school teachers school teachers that taught me 25, 30 years ago, both of whom are probably now dead, and a very thick and unpleasant gym teacher and a very psychotic, dangerous, violent man who taught us geography, who I've christened Mr. Sinfield and Mr. Shrapnel. And, uh, Do you think they're going to be writing to you if they are still I alive? Think, uh, well, I don't think so. I think, you know. Basically, it ends up with John Patton. I do John Patton in it as well, and we managed to get that through the lawyers. Was it really that, that tricky? Oh, all the shows have to go through lawyers, yeah, if they involve yeah. real people, yeah basically about him coming around and doing that whole sort of admin, uh, sort of pocket calculator attitude to education. And we see Ted, who's this big, gormless, but rather handsome PE teacher, and they realise he should be headmaster. In fact, um, John Patton's number two, mm. his character I've created, he's like a horrible sort of Heydrich henchman, 
eventually does a coup on Patton and this thick gym teacher becomes mm. the Minister of Education, whatever. So have you been mastering John Patton's voice then? Not really. I just I just try and get that look of, you know, like a man who digs up half rotten reptiles and has sex with them, you know. There's um, a lot of dodgy business going on with government ministers at the moment. Were you tempted to bring that in or is that actually involved? Well, uh, it's funny. I, Ian Hislop and I, he and his family and I went off on a holiday recently and we were talking about this, that it's getting very tricky with uh, the government because it is beyond parody. You cannot parody all these people who should be in jail. I mean, if only on the basis of the Scott inquiry, half the cabinet should be in jail. And that's a fact. That's not some lefty hysteria. That's a fact. They should be in jail. They're not in jail. I mean, endless sort of cover-ups and uh, serious sort of undermining of our constitution. By their own standards of punishment, they should all be hanged. I'd happily do it, I have to say. Oh, enough of that. Yeah. What, what about all the sort of sexual promiscuity that's going on behind the scenes with them, though? Are you, are you trying to take them well, I, I, find, I feel all that secondary. As in uh, two of the most notable politicians of the 20th century, you know, Lloyd George and John F. Kennedy, and indeed Franklin Delano Roosevelt, to name a third, you know, they shagged as if there was no tomorrow. And that didn't affect their statesmanship. I don't really care about... I, I do think, you know, a guy like David Mellor, who you know, grabs his family and shoves them up, up against the fence to look like the Waltons to try and save his career is not someone I would trust for three seconds. I mean, one has to remember that politics is not... The Samaritans and some of the greatest politicians have been very ruthless and dangerous people, but they have at some level been competent and effective and also driven by some sort of principle, some sort of objective and principle. And uh, I, I find all the sexual peccadilloes utterly secondary behaviour with each other and they, they, they shaft each other. I mean, they're like a bunch of polecats in a sack, you know. And as soon as they say, I stand right behind, you know, Waldegrave's going to get the chop, you know. And hopefully Major is. I mean, if someone as nasty as Tony Marlowe can stand up and say he's terminally dead, I mean, maybe he is going to go this time. Although I wrote a piece that was rejected by a magazine recently, the basic tenor of which was that the government used this as a smokescreen, this thing of them tottering and almost declining and falling apart. Because actually, behind the scenes, they're doing very well, insofar as they're getting through all the legislation they want. Legislation which is unspeakable, but, you know, all the health reforms and dreadful sort of market forces being brought to bear in education and health and everything is still going on. Bottom is doing whatever the hell she likes. Patton's doing what he likes, you know. And John Major, do you think he'll survive? Probably, because, I mean, the big question at the moment, and it's quite obvious looking around the world, that all government is now secondary to multinational concerns and movements. They are the real dynamics of world determinism. And uh, politicians are secondary. They're like sort of rather unimportant bank managers. That's why they all look and behave now like rather unimportant bank managers. So Major's inefficacy has to be seen in the context of the rest of the world. I mean, Clinton's another one. Cole's another one. I mean, he happened to be the head of a burgeoning economy, which is now not as good as it was, but actually, in isolation, Cole was just a big, fat, crap burger, you know, as in B-U-R-G-H-E-R, not as in, you know. And, of course, the Italians, well, you know. They, mm. And the, um, that's, uh, that is the way of the future. I mean, I really think that that is the whole, the long-term agenda of murder, but anyway, mm. whatever. What about you going into politics? Have you ever considered it? Uh, no, I, I, I do my bit, and uh, I do less than I should, really, for the Labour Party. Ultimately, you know, it is one's obligation. You can sit at home and moan and whinge and say, well, I don't want to be any part of any of this and I'm going to keep my own morals and, or whatever and sit in a barrel. Unfortunately, every one of us, when we get up in the morning, every day we have to make what are effectively political decisions. You know, democracy is about every indi individual being responsible. 
you know, right from you know not chucking stones through Pakistani grocers' windows to having a little bit of sort of intelligence when it comes to tax policy, you know. And you know it's okay if you, if you got 85 lawnmowers and three cars and three holidays a year, but if your children have to walk through 55 bin liners and probably end up being stabbed or drugged, is that really worth it? I think not. You know, if your society is just going to be your little compound as it is in America, you know, the whole society that Tom Wolfe talks about in Bonfire of the Vanities, which you know I'm sure you've been to New York, you know, you go to a nice place there, but you're going to a fortress. You know, it is a fortress. You know, you go through 15 three keys and combinations, and you're up in a wee room. Down below is just it's Bangladesh crossed with Caligula's Rome. I mean, it's just unspeakable. There was a time when it looked like you might go to America and start working over there. You went to the Oscars one year and you did. Oh, that was just that was just that was a, a, a coach trip, really. Yeah. No, I, there was no. I'm going to America next month to to write something with. I'm going to write with Eric Idle, but I mean, I've got no. Why do you need to go to America to write it? Why can't you write it over here? Because he can't come over. Yes, isn't, it sounds very grand. It's, it's I mean. If he were over here, we'd do it here. It's just that he's editing a film and he can't get away. And it's easier. I've got to be back here to work in June. But um, I, can, I can go over there, so I'll go there. Are all your ambitions within show business now? That's a very good question. Yes, they are. It's probably not the way it should be. I mean, there should be more... Uh, I do tend to... In fact, Rog, one of my colleagues, uh, said to me yesterday, have you got any hobbies? And I had to answer no. I don't. I mean, my hobbies are... A lot of my social life, not all my social life, is with sort of um, people in the business. And, I mean, after the news today, I'm off to Stephen Fry's dinner just tonight because the book gets launched today and blah blah. But I would love to take up golf or fishing. I really would. Friends of mine who do that, I know quite a, f a lot of people in the business who golf, people who fish. Robbie, for example, is wonderful. Robbie can sit in the garage all day and work on his cars and completely shut out the whole business, and that's fantastic. You still see a lot of these guys out of work. Yes, not out of work, hopefully. Um, yes, well, there's about three or four people I see regularly who are well-known people, you know, in that field. I mean, a lot of people are colleagues, you know, but I do see, I see Robbie a lot, I see Stephen a lot, I see Ruby Wax a lot, I see Ian Hislop a lot. But, you know, I don't go to glitzy do's. It's like, you know, we do enjoy those companies, not swanning around... In the great scheme of things, I mean, let's face it, I'm not Frank Sinatra. No, just I enjoy that company very much. They're all very, very funny, exciting. Are you planning to do a big project together with all these people at all? Is, is it no, I have written, in fact, I've written a, a screenplay for the BBC, which has been temporarily rejected, I'm afraid. It was rather embarrassing to admit. But I hope to do some more work on it with my current director, Roger Michel, who did uh, Buddha of Suburbia. And he did downtown Lagos, and he's been directing the RSC for a thousand years. And he's, he's actually, if I may say, without being lovey gush, he's the best director I have ever worked with. And I've worked with them all, darling. <laughs> he is. He's the best director I've ever worked with. So that is written. That piece is written with several other people in mind. I don't think I'll name all of them, but uh, one of them is Tim Spall, who's somebody else I see an awful lot of. In fact, we were working together in June. We were doing a series together in June and July. And he's doing stubs at the moment, then he's having a holiday. You mentioned loveys earlier on. You've been accused of being a lovey and spitting image portrayed you disappearing up your own bottom and mm. things. I mean, does that bother you? Yeah, of course it does. There's always that thing of, you know, oh, this isn't true. Oh, it's Most of the things that really bother people are things that are true. So you are a lovey, John. Oh, of course I'm a lovey, yes. But, you know, I mean, I think that's because of the, the comedy was very showy off it was a frighteningly good puppet. In fact, 
shortly thereafter, when I was, I was touring a one-man thing in the country, and we were in Bath, and the spitting image puppets were on display, and I had to do a sort of publicity picture for the local paper with me and my puppet. It was so good, that puppet. It was so... It caught me... It got, oh, God, it caught me frighteningly, actually. I mean, you were once an impressionist on Spitting Image. You see, they sort of stabbed you in the back, really. Is that right? Well, it was a whole different. T I don't know. You have to say, you know, it's fair enough. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it didn't really, didn't really bother me actually. Bothered me a little bit, though. Oh God, I'm figure of fun. No, well, fuck it. But I mean, everyone is to some extent. And uh, it was a wholly different team. I mean, I'd left in '87, and they did this in what '90 or '91 or something. You know, so new blood, mm. the youngsters. Because Steve Coogan sort of took my place, and he's wonderful. Did you watch The Day Today? It's uh, very good, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's very good. He's a good boy, Steve, he's very clever. Are you going to be working with Kenneth Branagh again? Uh, we never really worked with Kenneth, I, mean, I just came oh. in, I mean, apart, well, he directed me, and then I did a coffinous bit in Henry V. Possibly next year, There's, I, I can't say any more than that. But, um, I don't know, I mean, I'm his pal more than his, you know, I do what I do. You know, and he, in his little way, does what he does, you know. And, you know, I'm, no, I'm not stupid, you know. Ken is an international star, let's face it. Well, you've done a few Hollywood movies and things. No, the, the, I did a, it's a terrible thing in France, really. I did a thing with Rosanna Arquette and Carrie Fisher, yeah. which was basically nonsense. But mm -hmm. it was very interesting to work with them and to do love scenes with Rosanna Arquette. I was married to Carrie Fisher in the film. And it was called Sweet Revenge. I mean, it, it stiffed instantly, you know. Mm -hmm. It stiffed as soon as it hit oxygen. Was that the end of your film career, was it? Oh, yeah, it wasn't even really the start of it, well, I don't think. I mean, You've I've been in The Bounty with Mel Gibson. I did a film in the autumn, actually. I, I did a quite nice uh, cameo. Oh, I played uh, the Prince of Wales in um, a film with Kevin Klein in the autumn, which is coming out in the summer. Nice scene, and nice wee scenes with Stephen Ray and Phoebe Cates, which is nice. But, I mean, to seriously address the question of filmmaking, it's quite interesting. I would have lo loved Liam Neeson to have got the Oscar, because Liam was on The Bounty which is all those years ago. And Liam quite consciously made the decision, because he was you know, a British actor doing tellies and theatre and stuff, but he consciously made the decision shortly thereafter to go to America, and he has worked and worked and worked and worked his way up. You know, he has not had sudden success, Liam. He has been working very hard for 10 years in all sorts of movies, Bernard McClafferty, Lamb, uh, The Innocent, I think, and then he did a Woody Allen recently, Husbands and Wives, and there he is, and I was so pleased for him. And Wouldn't you I'd like to be Yes, I would. Um, I think, you know, you know, maybe I'm 41 now, so, you know, better get cracking. But maybe I'll be like Margaret Rutherford, you know, be an old, old daddy. I mean, I'd never, I mean, you look at how, I mean, I'm not handsome enough to be a film star, so that, that wouldn't work. Um, Do you think you spread your wings too wide as well? Possibly, possibly. But, I mean, coming back to the thing you said earlier, it's also partly to do with keeping fresh you know I mean doing this is great I mean this is just the sort of work I've been needing to do for ages I've been wanting to work at the Royal Court for a long time in a complete no place to hide play where you're judged absolutely on your acting nothing else directed by a first class fucking director and first class cast I mean the guys designed this show designed the ring cycle and by right for Christ's sake you know you know it's a small theatre production but it ain't the gang show mm -hmm. believe me uh, and I don't say that for my ego, I just say that for where we're at. But yes, not to avoid your question, I may perhaps have done that. I mean, if I had wholeheartedly worked at uh, LE, perhaps, I would be possibly regularly doing comedy shows and television instead of doing a series every so often, as well as 
other things. No, it's a question I think about quite a lot, and you m it might be right. Maybe I have spread it too widely. Do you think you might regret it one day? When you're uh, sitting in a Beverly Hills mansion. When I'm not sitting. Floor. When I'm not sitting in Beverly. Exactly. When I'm still sitting in Putney. Possibly. Yeah. But as long as I do things that I like doing, and I learn from them, and I get something out of it, that's all right. Uh, well, that's more than all right. That's good. And you know, I wouldn't want to be off doing trainer or something like that. You know. I hope not. No, I mean... can't really see you in that. No, I wouldn't. I'd like to do things with... I mean, I feel this is a very good project. I mean, I've just done a tele-drama with Rufus Sewell and Saskia Reeves, which is going out the same week as the series starts, the comedy series. And that's different again, you know. David Edgar drama, where I play the 17th century philosopher. I've done a lot of period stuff recently. It's weird, it's odd, but Boswell and Johnson and King Georgie and this. Perhaps you have that look. That's it, yes. Rattled. <laughs> Rattled and syphilitic. It sounds like you're quite well booked ahead. How far ahead are you booked? Uh, to the end of August, at the moment. Yes, I do the series with Tim June, July, and then I'm I'm doing Ruby's show, sort of every week. That's the plan at the moment. Anyway, uh, if I don't do that, uh, I will get seriously cracking either on the thing with Eric Idle or the thing that I'm writing, the thing that's currently being put in the back burner. But we'll get it on. Is there anyone you're desperate to work with, any particular project that you'd love to do? Yes, I'd love to, well, yeah, I'd love to do a film with Al Pacino, but to be realistic. Is he your hero? Yeah, he's in some ways my favourite actor, yeah. Yeah, the three greatest actors in the world, I think, are Al Pacino, Robert De Niro and Jared Depardieu, and uh, probably Anthony Hopkins, we'll make it four. I'd like to work properly with Anthony Hopkins, apart from, I served him dinner, I think, in The Bounty, and it's not quite the same thing. But um, I've been lucky enough to see him from time to time, and being the gent that he is, enormous star though he is, you know, as long as nobody takes advantage of him, he's, he's a deeply civil and delightful man. That would be thrilling, you know, to do a part, say, like Hugh Grant. Have you seen Remains of the Day? Oh, yeah, three times. I, mean, I, think Hugh, I think it's the best performance Hugh Grant's ever given as well. To do a scene as he did, that wonderful scene he does with Hopkins and that, I thought, yeah, if I could hold my own as Hugh Grant did, very much so. You know, to hold your own with Hopkins is no mean fucking feat, mm. you know. So yes, I, I would love to do a considerable film part. Maybe not necessarily on big film, you know, just a good telly film where people come away and say, oh, it wasn't just a bit of novelty casting, you know, they've got a free funny man in to make up the team, you know. But the, the, you're always in that, there is always that problem, you know, that, you know, if you do comedy or whatever, they off when they when they do acting, well, they're not really doing it properly, and you know, will make allowances or contrary, will won't make allowances. But I look at someone like Jim Broadbent, for example, who's had a very interesting career. I mean, there's Jim who did all kinds of funny comic mm -hmm. things, Mike Lee and everything. Life is and now he's just done a Woody Allen, and then he did that program with Julie Walters, and Jim is, you know, is a seriously considered as an actor, which he is. You know, he is a comic actor, and I. That's the kind of area and the kind of objectives I have. So what are you through whatever means, be film or television, drama or whatever, to secure a a placement where I'm respected by my colleagues and those who would wish to employ me as a comic actor. Is that how you see yourself as a comic? How do you describe yourself? What do you, what's I'm not really possible? a comic. I'm not, and I don't say that pejoratively, but I, I can't as a skill. I'm not very good at, uh, to put it mildly standing up with the microphone and telling jokes. I can't do that. 
I tried that to come back to what I was saying when I wrote earlier after the Columbus thing. I wrote these monologues, more or less along the lines of Lenny Henry and Ben Elton, sort of saying, could I do what they do? And the answer was no, really. We tried it, and I wrote these things. They were reasonably funny, but it was very interesting watching Len the other week. I did Clive James with him the other day, and uh, my stuff was all right. But um, Len's gag timing is something to behold. It's quite remarkable. He's really good at it. You mentioned earlier you're 41 years old and you're still not married. Is, Gloria, Gloria. <laughs> is marriage on the cards at all? Do you have a, so. huh? is it, You've had someone in your life some time, haven't you? There was somebody. Oh dear, it's all over. Yeah. yeah. I mean, are you hoping to settle down one day, or do you think you're going to stay know, eternal I know, bachelor? You know, think, no, I, I know that's a little bit sad, you know, being an old sod, you know, with his cat. You know. No, I, I like to think you know something different will happen. You know, I mean, I'd like there to be quite a big change on that front for the next few years. Uh, I'm making the move. I mean, because of the last 12 years, because I was late to start my career. I really have spent the last 12 years thinking about nothing else, frankly. And, you know, other parts of your life suffer. Well, one thing is when you see friends who aren't in the business, and my closest friends aren't in the business, you become a boring bastard, because that's what you can talk about. It's like a doctor coming back from a hospital, or a nurse, or a teacher, talking about Mr. Wilkins's geography problems or whatever. So I'd like to open up that side of my life a bit more, you know. You certainly come across as a bit of a workaholic. Do you think that work has stopped you from getting settled down with anyone? Yes, definitely. And it also implies something which is perhaps not too attractive to confront in oneself, is that, that it probably means I'm rather selfish. And I like to think that my friends or indeed family or whoever, I'm not selfish and I'm considerate and all the rest of it. I try to be anyway. But at the bottom line, you know, too many times the decision has been made, no, I won't go on holiday with these friends. I need to stay back and do this. Actually, damage, certainly for a period, some very close and important friendships, because work was always more important. Is it holiday time and when you go back in the evening after work that you realize, gosh, I really wish I could be with somebody? Quite often, yeah, yeah. So uh, one sort of goes out or keeps oneself active. So what sort of a person is it going to take to sweep you off your feet? I don't know. I haven't met him yet. Are you inundated with fans and groupies turning up at the stage door for you all the time? Um, no, no, no. Yeah, but there's four or five who regularly um, phone or write. One in particular who phones who's um, become a bit of a problem, actually. But, really? uh, yeah, not quite fatal attraction, you know. Yeah. We hope not. Um, what sort of lengths has she gone to, then? Oh, just endless phoning and sending me tapes, telling me all the things that are wrong with me and uh, that uh, I should be in love with her and... I always have a problem because I'm not, you know, so she's one of the, she's a bit like, a bit play misty for me. You know? Yeah. So do you acting away and you see her in the front row or something? Occasionally, and you, mm. there's another one who turns up and she always leaves her phone number if she can get close to me. And you just hope none of them ever have a gun yeah. or a knife. Have you ever been followed home and that sort of thing? No, uh, there's one woman and her kids parked themselves on my doorstep for a while. That was a bit worrying. But then she stopped doing that, fortunately. Well, why did she do that? She sort of yeah. claimed they, they were your kids or something? No, 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 no. never that one. Being the love child thing. Right, yeah. But I mean, you, you still get plagued with fans a bit, do you? Or not? not plagued, no. I mean, enough people say they like my work and that's fine, you know. Yeah. I mean, people I know are obviously far more famous people than I. Their, their freedom is definitely restricted. They can't go to places, they just can't go out. You can't walk down Oxford Street, you know, without being pestered. I mean, Robbie can't go anywhere, really. 
He's very noticeable. Isn't he, he is, isn't he? Yeah, he is. I saw him with you once, and it was yeah. quite a sight, with all respect. Well, we're, we're different size, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> big boy, big boy. Well, Rob's lost a lot of weight, you know, mm-hmm. and having the baby has changed him considerably. Mm. Have you had to do a bit of a head on the bottom carter and sort of draw a veil over these people and stop them coming near you and that sort of thing? Oh, I'm not. I'm, not, I'm quite in her league, really. Mm. Uh, uh, it must be very difficult, I think, for a beautiful woman, and Helen is very beautiful. She's actually got more and more beautiful. It must be very intimidating for them. Imogen Stubbs, another one, an incredibly beautiful woman. Oh, it's funny, I, I did a thing in the olding, you know, my pin-up section. I said one of them was Pat Imogen Stubbs, I think she's the most beautiful woman in the world. And I sat next to her at the Standard Awards a few weeks later. And I wondered, did she, did she know about it? Actually, heard about it. We were chatting away, and I wondered, did she know that? I, she is very lovely. Is it difficult not to fall in love with some of your co-stars when you're, you know, with somebody very beautiful like that? Well, I just work with Saskia Reeves, and she's very beautiful, very beautiful. Yes, you can get and get a bit carried away. But we're nothing, you know, not really. I mean, I was very bewitched by Rosanna Arquette, but that was also, I suppose, because she was very famous, an American sort of star or whatever. Do you have an ideal woman? Yes, oddly, yeah. But she doesn't conform to reality. She has to say whenever I want to do what I want to do, that's mm. fine. But then she also has to be very exciting and ballsy and sort of as funny as Ruby Wax and as beautiful as Imogen Stubbs. And yeah. So she doesn't necessarily exist, this girl? She might do. She might do. It would be nice if she was out there somewhere. When they ring you up, do you answer the phone? Do you say they ring you up? No, I kept ignoring. There was one, um, I better not name her, but she kept ringing and uh, eventually I did answer the phone. I tried to explain to her, but that's the thing you mustn't do. If you start talking to them, can't even begin to reason with them because they're not open to reason. You know. Well, what sort of things are they saying? Oh, you know, I. Why don't you just have a drink with me? What are you frightened of? You know, what's your problem? You know. And the problem is you don't want to go and see someone on that basis. You know, because you know because of the nature of their obsession that they're obsessed with. Well, they're not obsessed with you for a start. They're obsessed with. I mean, this guy in the box or whatever dressed up as Napoleon. That's not me. You know, I mean, that, that's me doing my job. That's all it is, you know. Have you ever made that mistake, gone out for a drink with them thinking, well, it'll be quite Never. harmless? Oh, Christ, no. Yeah. Never, no. Uh, Do they send you strange things in the post, like pairs of knickers? Yeah, lots of... And I've had pubic hair sent to me, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Is that from Rupert Everett? Because he did that once. <laughs> I hope it wasn't from Rupert Everett. Oh, I, uh, I haven't had knickers. I've had requests for nude photographs. I've been sent nude photographs. Sometimes by married women as well. So they send a picture of themselves in the nude and they send a picture of themselves in their kids. I mean, it's so you just chuck it away. Most men seem to come to a point where they think, well, I'm not going to be attractive anymore when I get to a certain age. But in fact, it seems yeah, to... Yeah, I did that ten years ago, yeah. <laughs> Twenty years ago, yeah. Mm. The funny thing is that um, people see you in the street or they come up for autographs and you see them go, oh, fucking hell. Because you've just got slap on you when you're on the telly or whatever and they see all the wrinkles or the bloody open pores or... The bags under the eye, I think. Fucking hell, you know. I can remember doing that when I've seen people. You see them on the box and you see them in the flesh and they always look a bit more, you know. Sometimes it's the other way. I mean, you see some people. I remember seeing George Michael in a restaurant once and I was amazed at how he was about five years younger. And Bob Geldof. In fact, I remember Bob Geldof well, some years ago. Yeah, I thought, he's just like Bob Geldof, but he must be his kid brother. But he was Bob Geldof. He looked incredibly young. You know, I suppose Bob's out when he was 33 or something. He looked about 22. It was amazing. Mm. Talking of Bob Geldof, with all respect, you're not the sort of like the Mr. Sartorial Elegance, really. You're not Mr. Smart Dresser or everything. It's a bit of a yob, yeah. Do you, do you think well, maybe I should change my image a bit to sort of... Yeah, I, should work, I should work harder at that, yes. I mean, I think, in fact, Roger and I were just talking about it 
earlier though, I come into rehearsals, he had a pair of old jeans and an old sweater. But David Bamber, who's in this play, is very, very natty, very smart. Anthony, who'll be in in a moment, is in the dressing room. Very smart chap, you know. And yes, I should take more care, really. Because I'm either smartish. I tend to look like a, a bloke who does a sort of terrible job and gets dressed up for Saturday night when mm. I get smart. I don't look like a bloke who's generally quite presentable and then puts a suit on. Which, uh, but I'm trying to sort of narrow the gap between being an absolute scruffy potato-faced mm. git and uh, somebody who's smart, you know. Do you think it'll take a, a woman in your life to smarten you up and, and get you on a good diet? Yes, when someone was living with me, uh, the, the, the enormous strides we made. And she took me out, because I hate shopping, she took me out in clothes shopping. things. But when there's not a woman in your life, you tend to go back to your old ways, do you? Yeah, I mean, I don't live in with fish heads lying on the floor, you know. But um, what do the stones say? Very, very un-PC-ishly, they say. An old song of theirs, it takes a woman's touch to bring the place alive or whatever. No, women do keep men in order. It's always about it. So you're saying you quite fancy moving up into the West End to be closer to your work? Yes. Joss Ackland lives in Covent Garden. I was just yeah. working with him. and uh, uh, a cool part, that one, isn't it? It's beautiful, yeah. And I'd, I'd love to um, be in that sort of area. You know, mm. Joss is a keen cook as well. He's got those wonderful wee sort of places around. I'd love to be up in town, you know. You like quite a fast life, don't you? I mean, do you not fancy going out in the countryside and sort of taking it I easy? I don't mind the country. I like it a wee bit. I mean, I'm, it's lovely. I was, I was over the Hislops a wee while ago and um, lived somewhere in the country and um, it was gorgeous, you know, but it's okay for two days, you know, but any longer than that. I miss, I miss the Johnsonian city. I'm a bit Dr. Johnson that way. I love uh, Stephen and I walking in Piccadilly Girls and walking along, you know, all types and all people and the bustle and the hustle and the varied life of London. I love that. I love it. I sometimes, although the traffic drives me mad and all kinds of other things, I think sometimes, gosh, I'm living in London, it's great. Mm. Are you yeah. the same with your work? Are you a bit paranoid when you're on the television or whatever? You haven't got a project going? Um, frustrated. I think well, well, it took me a long time to get the series sorted. And I thought, and people kept saying, oh, why haven't you on the box? I haven't seen you in the box for a while. So, yeah, and then I thought they, they thought it was bullshitting when I said I was writing. I was writing, but it was being very difficult because I did feel I had to make an advance on the last thing I did. There are younger people coming up, there are new tastes. Although you have to, you've got to stick to your own guns, but you mustn't be sort of just stuck in your ways. It's a very hard, fine line to be true to yourself and at the same time to change and develop, you know. Because, you know, I mean, if I were to get on the stage now and do these lines anyway, you know, I mean, it's history, you know, it's, mm. it's a old hat. They've seen all that. Mm. Uh, they might say that about the new series. I like to think that, you know, you know, it's not, I mean, I'm not coming on singing rap whatever, or making jokes about nuclear war or whatever, mm. but um, I like to think it's an advance and it's different. But yes, I'm very glad I got this series stitched up and done, and then I can get on to the next, I wanted this to be the last sort of half-hour comedy thing, and the next things I want to write are actually for other people, and then go back to write for myself, but more in a drama setting, because I'm more that way inclined anyway, I think, than say, like, Harry or whoever, you mm. know. You ever fancied a sitcom? Well, J Tim and I are doing one in June. We did the pilot last year. So we're doing the rest. In fact, we're reshooting the first one, apparently. So we're, we were talking about it last night, actually, the terrible sort of fatalities in sitcoms. I mean, it's like the First World War, isn't it? I mean, and the ones that seem to work are the ones that actually base their comedy upon the character. But the comedy comes out of the characters. I mean, One Foot in the Grave is a classic example. Fools and Horses is another. 
I think in one just it's a generalized, not very interesting group of people and just sprinkles generalized gags on them. People have to really like and be interested in Victor Meldrew, Del Boy, Rodney, Reggie Perrin, Basil Fawlty, Sybil Fawlty. They've got to really like these people. They've got to be, these people have got to be as real. They so have to be, you've be got to, well, I hope it's going to be all right. It's about office life. I can't really say any more than that. Actually. What do you know about office life? Everything, love. <laughs> no, I, I play um, a terrible security man with yeah. terrible fantasies. And yeah, quite the bill for a security man. Not really, no, no. I'm working on it. I did my weights this morning, actually. All right. Yeah. No, I'm a member of the Marshall Street gym. I became a member last July. Mm. Do you know how many times I've been? Never. I thought, if you become a member, that'll be it. will be here every day. Yeah. I never was. I go through spates of it, though. I mean, um, I went through quite a fitness phase last autumn. Still couldn't get that weight off my face. But that's um, because I like bread and potatoes too much. Do you get recognised a lot in the street? Sometimes. I always get recognised more when I'm in a suit and it's sunny. Mm. I'm like a scruff and it's dull. I don't get recognised very much. What do they recognise you for? Do they tend to oh, come up and talk about? Fine, I suppose, yeah. Mm. yeah. What sort of things do people say to you in this Blo case? Blokes I recognised me yesterday from the Common Pursuit, though. It was funny. Oh, I remember once, it was very funny, this guy, we guy in a van. He went, Oi! Oi! Hey! It ain't your fucking line, is it? Ah! Ah! Which I thought was very funny, actually. <laughs> when you're out with your mates, the, mm. the famous, like Stephen Fry or whatever, do they get mm. hassled as well? Yes, well, yes, yes. Mm. But yeah, they deal with it very gracefully. Mm. Is there anyone you haven't met that you'd like to meet and be a friend of or whatever? Yes, but I always think that's a bit like me and the fans in a way that, you know, my perception of a lot of people I haven't met is similar to people's perception of whoever, you know, mm. as a television person. And, you know, the person who you may think is fascinating, you know, one is demanding that the person is more or less like they are on the telly or mm. whatever. The differences are enormous. I, mean, I know Richard Wilson as well, and Richard, Richard nearly gave him my first job actually. Mm. He's a very good director as well. But I mean, he's not this cantankerous old bugger. He's a very sweet and charming and funny mm. man. Uh, which is why he can play a cantankerous mm. old bugger so well. Were you a fan of anyone when you were young? Oh, millions of people. Whose picture do you have on your wall? I Jimi Hendrix on the wall. Right. And the Stones, of course. Mm. I love the Stones. I, Keith Richard is the person I really love. But, but once again, it comes back to the first question about Edward Fox. First day of recording Likely Stories, that night I'd been invited by Peter Cook to the Derek and Clive video launch thing. And because I was working, I thought, no, don't go to this because you'll come in tomorrow knackered and hungover, and so don't go. So it's a good boy, went home. Next day, his lot rang me up and said, if you'd come last night, you could have sat with me in a little sidebar talking to Keith. Ian, Keith, Ronnie. Could have been Johnny, and I regret that very much. But then again, having met the idol, I've probably been very, you know, because I mean, you know, it is the icon I'm obsessed with. You know, Keith, probably just, I mean, he's drunk and sort of, you know, not very interesting. Oh, certainly, why would he be interested in me? I mean, he spent his life seeing people gawping at him and trying to be like him. It's the most boring thing in the world for him. He, I mean, he's very interested in all sorts of things, Keith. Apparently, he's wonderful at trivial pursuit. If, got, if the question came on to, I don't know, 16th century Spanish battle techniques, I mean, he might be well into that, you know. So he'd be probably get off and talking about that. And I've been in circumstances like that before with famous people where the conversation goes on to... I remember talking to Chrissy Hind about um, 
birth control once, you know, for quite a long time. Well, at least she's had a child, hasn't she? Quite, yes, yeah. yes. And uh, that was nice. But it's like, I mean, it, it, you could tell. But yeah, who else? Oh, so, 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 so many people. The people you tend to do impressions of, are they mm. the people you admire? Yes, I, I can't think of anyone. Um, that's why I don't do cabinet ministers. Basically, I can't do them, but I mean, I just I loathe them so much. You know. So you're a bit of a Chris Eubank fan. That's funny you should say that. I like Chris Eubank because I know he's um he's very true to himself, and there's something rather sad and lonely about him. Who well, I went to that evening with last summer before the fight with him and Nigel Benn. Now Nigel is a very very good friend of mine. I do not believe a word you've heard about it. Nigel and I often go to our shopping parties together. We often mince down the King's Road buying interesting pairs of socks. Now, all that stuff about us not liking each other is absolute nonsense. And I find Chris Eubank actually far more attractive than Nigel Ben. Just being honest, I just felt he was very honest. And the fact that he calls, blows the whistle on what a disgusting business boxing is, one could say then he shouldn't box. But at least he makes no pretenses that there's something romantic and marvellous and gladiatorial. It's about nasty men in shiny suits making a lot of money out of men who beat the shit out of each other. You know, the men who never get blood on their ties but take all the money. You know, it's a very horrible business. Is there anyone else you're perfecting impressions on at the moment? I'm, I'm I'm sort of doing an Albert. I've, I've come. It's not really so working. I just suddenly get tickled by a voice I like doing. Young Joe's in the play. Does a fabulous David Thewlis from uh, Naked. Very very good. I'm very jealous of that impersonation. It's very good. Went to the country and got bored. I went out the road and got bored. I fucking I can't do it. He he does it really well. But Al Pacino in The Godfather Three. I love doing. Joey says as a pazzo. He's an enforcer. He's nothing. Don't overestimate the powers of forgiveness. Have you seen Godfather 3? Oh, I love it. I love it. I fucking it's love it. It's a very underrated film, though. Oh, it's great. All these people have said, oh, it's not as good as the other. Yeah. Do you fantasise about being in a, a mafia movie or anything? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, talking to someone like Tim Roth or Oldman, you know, when doing these American pictures, you know. Tim doing that Tarantino movie with uh, Harvey Keitel. It's wonderful. I'm dying to do a piss take of the, of the piano, actually, I have to say. Mm -hmm. I just... Yeah, me too. I hated it too, yeah. Boring. Yeah. Arse-paralysingly boring mm. film. Mm. What would you do in a piss take of it? Well, I thought I might call it the trombone and do this, um, I don't know, this woman trombonist who gets washed up in Samoa or something. A crossover between Boxing Helena and uh, the piano yes. would be quite a good one. I just thought it was, it was like Paris tedium, you know, it was just so arse-achingly unamusing. Mm. You know, and po-faced. Beautiful images, yes, that I grant. And great artistry and all the rest of it. It wasn't for me. Mm. I do need twinkle. I need bloody twinkle in pictures. Mm. Is there anyone else you wish you were at any stage? Do you wish you were Al Pacino or...? Yeah, I'd like to be now through the, the early golden period. I'd like to be now from Godfather 1 to Dog Day, Sarah Serpico, mm. that sort of period. But then Al had a lot of problems after that. You know, he started making bad movies and he drank and took too many drugs. But he's back with us. I love you, Al!